Hello, welcome to Process. My name's Stephen Walsh. This week, we're going to be talking to Pat Mills about his rich and colourful life in comics. Hello, Pat. Hi. Looking at 2000 AD, you see there the sort of development of comics as a whole where the central characters aren't necessarily people you're going to identify with or fantasise about becoming. You've got people like Judge Red, who you say is essentially a psychopath. Yeah. You have <laughs> uh, Nemesis, who is this <laughs> bizarre, yeah, bizarre-looking uh, um, slain, who, you know, uh, very uh, very handsome man, but once he goes into his berserker mode, he's not necessarily someone you want to be around or be. In, in <laughs> no, that's so, true. So it, it does feel like, you know, there's a sophistication there, a sort of moving into new areas and, and looking yeah. at the, the genres in, in different ways. You know, using Stain as an example, it's a fantasy story ostensibly, but drawing on Celtic mythology rather than the, the very, again, stayed and stuff in traditional Lord of the Rings and these are very clean, you know, it's a very clean... Uh, world they live in with like pristine robes as opposed to yeah. again it's the murk and the mud of what this world would have been like and what being a warrior in this world would entail yeah i mean in in the case of slain there were so many um threads in it that were uh what should we say anti well celtic celtic culture by definition is almost anti-establishment i mean and and that isn't just um you know me uh putting two and two together and making five I mean, you look at how Roman civilization is still proclaimed as a positive thing, and we don't stress the. We, no one would use the word Celtic civilization even today. I mean, I've talked to you know people who've been in school in very recent years. It's still the same stuff. Those, the, you know, this whole eagle thing. You know, the the Roman eagles and the legions. It's all order and discipline, and the Celts are seen as these, you know, rather crazy barbarians. Um, and it's not seen as a, as a civilization because a, a civilization is order. And uh, so, for example, in my hometown, right, uh, Colchester, uh, Britain's oldest town, and they talk about it in Roman terms. That's not true. It was a Celtic town before it was a Roman town. It just didn't have uh, an arena. It didn't have um, ordered streets, but it had, it, it, it was, you know, it goes back King Cole, old King Cole. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it, it was it was a Celtic town, but that's not acknowledged or, you know, the local culture council don't care. You know, I mean, it's, it's a Roman thing, you know, it's a, so the message is going out from from our earliest days that the Romans were a good thing, that we needed to be civilized, you know. And then when you look at that's the thing, when I started researching it, I start reading about uh, looking at these descriptions of Celts they all got spiked hair and they're three different colors and they've got tattoos and they you're thinking hang on these are punks you know <laughs> and and you, and uh, I think somebody described it uh, uh, um, a Celtic author described it as it, it, the Celts are almost the eternal other that they are the you know they're the opposition they you know they never probably been the odd exception but for the most part there are no organized great kingdoms of of, of the celts they're they're kind of tribes uh, and um there's usually three or four high kings mm, on the go at any one time in different regions yeah. based on different claims and, and, and that's why celts for the most part before slain had not really been uh, you know produced as, as as comics or films and still still more or less the case because you can make sense of thor and, and the Viking myths, you can make sense of Beowulf. So you have a Beowulf movie, uh, but you try they're all, and make they're it... They're hierarchical, aren't they? Yeah. There's a, there's a definite leader, and then there's definite rivalry between the siblings and what those. It's, it's really sort of obvious mm. tropes, isn't it? It's and the other thing is that the stories have, a, have a, an organised structure. They have a beginning, middle, and an end. You know, like, just like Greek myths, you know, yeah. they're very, yeah. very specific, and you, you can follow it all the way through. When you look at Celtic myths, they're all over the place. <laughs> you know, they change gear in the middle and, and all kinds of crazy things happen. And, and that's what makes them, I think, so attractive because, you know, speaking as, you know, I consider myself more Irish than English. And, you know, you, you still see those echoes of that, still hear those echoes of it in, with uh, the Irish today. You know, there's these old lines, which I sometimes work into slain. I, I was thinking of an elderly relative of mine who was talking about someone who had left the, the town and on the obscure part of the west coast of Ireland. And, and she said, um, 
it would have been better for her if she had stayed beyond. Now, it's, a, it's a very very Celtic way of putting things. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. I had slain or someone saying that at some point. You couldn't imagine a Nordic hero. That they're much more organised and precise and Roman heroes and so on. And what's so wonderful about it is that this struck a chord in the in the readers, and they they just they just rolled with it. And uh, and then of course you had all these. Well, how do you define a Celt? And then you get into these. This is when it all starts to get very problematic because you've got McMahon's wonderful uh, slaying that goes in one direction, and then various other slain artists that take it in other directions. I mean, they're all true, but they're you know it's it, it was quite challenging at that time. Mm. And in terms of Nemesis as well, I mean, uh, again, if we're looking at uh, anti-authoritarian figures... Oh, God, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, as far, uh, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, as far as I understand it, the, the strip originally came from a shorter strip, which was pretty much you and Kevin taunting the editor, is that correct? Yeah, uh, that's, that's, not, that, that's, that's pretty fair. Um, it was, yeah, in the first place, I was really dismayed that uh, some past managing editor had criticised uh, Kevin's travel tube in Robusters and said that if there had been time and there had been available pages, he would have rejected it. And for me, Kevin had produced in the travel tube these brief images you see in, a, in, a, in the collected image uh, volumes of, uh, of Robusters. He produced something that we talked about it a long while and... And I thought he'd done something very powerful in a very short space, very difficult. And so I really wanted to prove prove them wrong. I wanted to give Kevin the space to do it. And so we, we talked about it. Kevin developed it uh, a bit. And, and then I said, well, what, what about making the cops uh, inquisitors? Let's make it really scary. And we didn't even know what it was all about. We didn't even know who Nemesis was. <laughs> all, all, all we knew was that we wanted to do a kind of car chase story. And a car chase is generally don't work in, in comics because if you have regular cars because uh, they, they're not moving and it's a it's a static medium so the only way you can get over that is if it's if it's science fiction i mean I, it's a shame because I, I i used to try writing in action uh, and and indeed in early 2080s so on mac one um, did a car chase story because I, yeah, I love the idea of all this james bond stuff that nah, readers don't like it. No, nah, we don't care. You know, okay, it might be the latest Jag or BMW or whatever. We don't care or Porsche. You know, no, nah, it's boring. Okay, right. I've learnt my lesson. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it, it was the car chase, and the other thing we were influenced by uh, was something that it's a nettle that's never really been grasped. I think since. 2008 was very influenced by Metal Hurlant, but I in particular was very influenced by this guy called Kaza who used to do these one-off stories for Pillot or Metal Hurlant involving fantasy worlds. It'd just be a one-off. So you'd create an entire universe in just six or eight pages, and that was it. <laughs> and you think, my God, what's this guy on? <laughs> and he's certainly quite a hippie-looking character. And we thought, why don't we do the same thing? Let's have all these crazy scenarios. And in, almost immediately, the, the kind of British thing was actually pulling us down because if you look at the second nemesis story it goes in a different direction it's it's about teleport wires it's called kilowatt and then the original third one was going to be steampunk we were going to go off in lots of different directions following the french model but progressively the editor and i think he was probably reflecting the views of the readers wanted this more we need to make sense of all this whereas the french way is just you look at some of the Mobius stories. I mean, they, they're just flights of fantasy. Yeah, yeah. Episodic in their own yeah, terms. Yeah, yeah. The, just... the British thing is more linear and to have, you know. And, and so they want, and so suddenly having really, it was almost like a creative jamming session. We just go off in lots of different directions. Suddenly we have to make sense of this. And I had no idea who Torquemada was. I had no idea who Nemesis was. So where, where Nemesis was concerned, it, it, I thought, well, whoever's going to come out of that car He's got to be pretty shocking. Now, if you have a... Kevin tried a, 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 a very good demon. I mean, it, it was looked like, um, from memory, it looked like the creature out of Night of the Demon, you know, so it was a pretty nasty-looking thing. But you almost expected that and on a certain level. Uh, and, and so I, I, I kept looking at the car and thinking, well, the car's pretty cool. Maybe he should look like a car. And 
Yeah, so you have this very odd-looking, but ultimately, I think, more memorable than a conventional demon. You're never going to forget what Nemesis <laughs> looks like. You, why has he got that strange nose and, <laughs> and all the rest of it? And then on the, on the Torquemada side, Torquemada would come out with this rant, be pure, be vigilant, behave. And I, I suppose that just come out of my subconscious. And I thought, well, what is this all about? Why, why is he saying that? And I went for this very, very long walk to think about it. And, and, and I thought, well, I've got to make sense of all this because the readers are now expecting this to become a, a saga. And, and then it, and the penny dropped that, we are, and it's probably not that much of a stretch for me because that permeates all my stories. We're the bad guys, which is, if you think of colonial, you know, colonial Britain and so on, it's a, it must have been an absolute nightmare if you're African or South American or whatever. And um, everything just fitted into place. And suddenly you had this guy who was this ultimate racist. And then at the same time, because he had this kind, he was called Torquemada, so this meant he had a, sort of Spanish Inquisition thing, so it, it was really the Spanish Inquisition in space. And then Kevin and I were uniquely qualified for this because we both had Catholic backgrounds. I think we were almost kind of competing with each other. I mean, you look at Kevin's artwork, I mean, my God, what, you know, what is all that about? You know, this, this horrendous architecture that's beyond, uh, beyond Gothic. In other words, he's, you know, if it had been a French artist, they would probably have drawn some kind of grotesque version of Notre Dame or something like that, very precisely. But what Kevin's drawing is so much more interesting, this organic, yeah. weird world, um, you know, with, with that exquisite incline, you know, with all the detail of it. And, yeah, it, it, we, we just ran and ran with it. And, and there was a lot of subversion in it. We were, we were aware that, although the readers liked it, editorial weren't that happy with us. I... They didn't really, they weren't that comfortable with it, probably because it, it didn't, I think the editorial at the time were relatively conservative in certain respects. So they didn't like all the occult signs that Kevin was putting on, on his artwork and he got, um, you know, some, some sort of negativity over that. But so quickly, Torquemada was recognised as the, you know, the best British comic villain, you know, and this happened year after year after year. So... We knew we were on a winner, and uh, yeah. <laughs> um, it was a strip where, and I loved it. So this is a, a compliment I say, it, but everything about it was unsettling. Every yeah, it, every page, every image, every word. Many people have said that, and, yeah. but it was great because again, it was there was nothing like it that you'd read before. But it was it was a, it was this it was, it was disturbing. A, a very visceral thing to read it, and you've got these horrible things being said to these horrible-looking uh, characters. <laughs> Everyone horrible looks horrible. And I say, when I say horrible, that's no disrespect to Kevin's article at all. Not I at think, all. I think that's what he's going for. I think he'd be very pleased for me to say oh, I think what a horrible delighted. thing to look no, at. No, no, no. I mean, you look at, look at these talk commanders who are... Every, they, they seem to be decaying more and more. And, um, I, I think that was a catharsis for him. And, and it was for me. Torquemada, and indeed to a certain extent uh, Judge Dredd, or my interpretation of Judge Dredd, were inspired by a, a particular monk, uh, although he wasn't unique because they were all pretty bad, but there's one who actually um, uh, made the headlines. He was called The Swinging Monk. This was, yeah, it's really unfortunate now. <laughs> uh, I think this was just after The Singing Nun. Right, so right. He, he was a guy called Mike Mercado, and he was known as Brother Solomon. So you can see that influence coming in with Torquemada, but also I had a Judge Solomon in uh, The Cursed Earth. and uh, Because he was a very, I mean, he was a very dubious character. But he was also uh, a larger-than-life character. So these were the kind of people that I would, I mean, they had really weird names. Like they, uh, He was, quote-unquote, the prefect of discipline. I mean, you know, today you'd have social services. <laughs> yeah. Anyone quite, but also, <laughs> the prefect of discipline sounds like it could be a character from Nemesis the Warlock. I mean, it's not yeah. a huge leap to sort of... Well, I think, I think there actually was a prefect of discipline right. in there. <laughs> and, and so we, we, there were constant references. We were calling each other, you know, Brother O'Neill and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> this was all from this, um, this uh, grotesque school that I went to, uh, Dallasar Monks, who... Um, I also went to a Dallasar school. Oh, well, then you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> So looking at 2008, it was a space that just became synonymous with so many incredible creators passing through the doors. Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, Brian Bolland, uh, 
obviously yourself, Kevin. You know, so many, just incredible uh, array of Huge talent. list, isn't it? And yeah. it, it was a thing where, with the format of the comic, it allowed for a, a, a lot of, of new creators to come through. Was that deliberate in terms of the way it was set up, or was it something that evolved quite naturally across the life of the it, comic? It kind of, it was semi-deliberate. What we, we did to start with, there's a very early phase which often gets overlooked because the artists are, for the most part, anonymous. This was before Dave... And, or Dave, Dave Gibbons was there right from the start. But Kevin and Brian Bolland and various others came in maybe at least three, maybe six months, maybe even longer. And so that first critical year, we had... How do you make... How do you create a cool comic when you actually haven't got very cool artists? And we had a solution where we had a not very cool art editor called Doug Church, who was very, very talented in as much as... I, I think this isn't fully appreciated. And unfortunately, he, he, although I think he's on record in a fanzine, he actually hasn't gone on, you know, on a podcast or anything to you can really get the flavour of the guy. I mean, he's still around. He, um, he laid out every page. Now... The word layout suggests, well, he just did, I don't know, little squiggles or something. That's not the case. He physically laid out the page in a dynamic way. And the proof of it is, if you look at, say, the first half a dozen issues of 2000 AD, the earliest ones are very dynamic, and then it starts to tail off by about six, seven, or eight. And that's because I'd be chasing Doug and saying, please, Doug, can you lay out another one for, the, <laughs> for actually what were often rather boring or rather staid artists. I thought, you know, I need your dynamic touch. And he'd look at the script and say, mm, actually, that script's not very good either. And I'd say, well, OK, OK, well, what, what do you want? Yeah. And he said, well, can't you start it a different way? And I'd go, for you, Doug, yes. So I'm thinking of Flesh in particular. He said, no, it's not a very good opener. Now, can't you have something else? No, you have this. You know, he talked this very fast Cockney accent. And so he rejigged those pages. And, I mean, it was probably unrealistic of me, but my original plan was that Doug or his successors would lay out all these... So all these staid artists would suddenly look sexy and dynamic, and they do. Look at Mac One, for example. It's a very staid artist. But he looks... Yeah, OK, a $6 million man, but it, it looks sexy. It, look, it, looks, it looks hot. It wouldn't have been practical. Uh, well, it, it wasn't even practical even when I was doing it. Um, yeah, poor Doug's got overrested. Which is why I had to leave, you know, because <laughs> I, I wasn't prepared to drop my standard. But uh, then increasingly we started to get these very cool artists in, McMahon being one of the first. And there was resistance from the publisher because Mike's style was still evolving. And uh, it took a little while to you know, get the right rhythm on it. But he, he had one incredible gift, which was that Carlos had walked off the set and no matter what he says, he had gone and he'd gone off to do El Mestizo. And I'm sad about that. And I think he thought, and I think we thought as well, God, we're screwed. Judge Dredd is going to die. Because I, I put it out to a, uh, all kinds of artists, right? And the results weren't very good. There was one that was actually rather good, but it was hardcore S&M. And, of course, I could have got that toned down, but, you know, you had Judge Dredd with a whip, <laughs> and there was a real appetite. You know, he yeah. really... This was like some... He, he picked up on the skin two element of Dredd, which I'm sure wasn't Carlos's intention, but this guy, he understood it. I thought... I mean, I was only, what, 30 at the time? I was like, I'm not really sure what's going on here, but, you know... <laughs> uh, and then along came Mike McMahon, who had this Carlos... Uh, uh, you know, it's like a cousin of Carlos, and was taking it even more Carlos. And I think that astonished us all. And and uh, so, yeah, he, he was the first. And then obviously there was Brian Bolland and Dave was right there from the beginning. So I think they set the, the, the pace. And then meanwhile, there were all these other artists on, on the edges of this who would otherwise have gone into film or gone to work for America or, or gone off in some other direction, like, like Brendan McCarthy. And, and Brett Ewings and, and so on. So they came in and in those very early days, and I think this is probably true for the first, oh, I don't know, oh, several years. I, I wouldn't know exactly, but off the top of my head, I'd have said for a good four or five years, the writing, the writing was a real problem. It was right from the beginning. That's why I ended up writing every damn thing myself, <laughs> because it was actually easier to write myself than deputise the job to someone who wouldn't do a very good job. And occasionally I would 
I would cherry pick ideas from them and then feed them into the story and so on. Ergo, the, the very first dread to appear. I forgot his name now. I, sh- I normally know it comes off the top of my head, but it's, it's gone completely blank. <laughs> but he, he disappeared off the radar and he's never come to claim his prize, which I'm sure everyone is delighted by in a way because it could be a bit uncomfortable. But actually, no, he, there was this guy who, um, who, who wrote some stories for us on battle, which I didn't actually like very much. And um, his name is a matter of record. I mean, uh, you know, uh, there will be many fans who will know it. Uh, it's just this, for some reason, my brain has said, don't repeat his name. Uh, and uh, he, he did this story on battle, which I didn't like, called, uh, which actually wasn't a very good story, called um, Four Green Tank Men. And I thought, no, that's not a good title. and It's not a good story. And anyway, he rang me up one day. I think he was something like an accountant. And he said... Uh, you got any work? And I said, well, you can have a try at the... I'll, I'll send you the dread brief. And he came up with this original... The idea, the first one we used. And it was great. And, and he's disappeared. Set rolling. And then yeah, he's... and he's, he's never come back to say, hey, that was me. <laughs> um, I, I guess it's too late now. And probably it's, it'd be a little uncomfortable if he did surface. <laughs> I don't know what we'd all think of it now. Um but uh, yeah, yeah, so that was, he was, but it was hard finding writers. It was basically John Wagner and myself. We, we were the only two in those very early days who got it. You know, I mean, we knew what we wanted. John, John had his particular take. I had mine. And there were, you know, strengths and weaknesses in both our styles. And I suppose we sort of fed off each other. But I would, I mean, Tom Tully was a good sports writer, but he, he, sadly, we couldn't give him the, 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 we'd been, castrated there were no death games in other words you can have harlem heroes but no one can die so my original idea of people flying into spikes and everything in midair that was gone and so it's a typical sports story tom didn't have the uh, apart from cyborgs he didn't have the wherewithal to take it on somewhere onto it no and, and and whereas you know john was suddenly got this kind of new strand of energy with these incredible dread stories he was coming up with that really raised the bar, you know, and, and, and took us into sort of new territory. And then, and then, you know, there was I on Robusters, which was an accidental story on Star-Lord and Strontium Dog with him. But I think it took a while for those other writers to come in. And also it took a while for them to be accepted because we had this awful schism between uh, what you might call conventional readership and fandom, which likes something rather different. And, and there was this grey area in between. And yeah, there's casualties as a result. But uh, yeah, the, art, the artwork was changing things right from a very early stage. And the, the big thing, you know, I'm always sad about was if you've gone back five or six years earlier, if we'd done something like 2000 AD, five, six, seven years earlier, people like uh, Barry Windsor Smith would have been there. I mean, that's the reason he went off to um, America. Yeah. I, I'm pretty certain there wasn't tra- a space for him to. No, move into, they wouldn't yeah. have. No, because the deal was, and it was, it was a questionable deal, was you used foreign artists because it was a it was a, a, an economic thing. They were using studios. It was the power of the pound against the lira and the peseta. And okay, there's some validity in that. It's about making money. but And some of the artists were great. And the one thing that is never, I think, fully acknowledged, uh, and which I, I, I know my art editor, Doug, would always go rambling on about, but he was right, was the Spanish have got a very soft... It, it's in their blood. You know, they, they use a brush in a way that you won't find many British artists will get that softness, that looseness. I mean... You take an artist like Bellardinelli, what a great inker he is. Okay, we can all criticise his anatomy and so on, and it's totally justified, but his inking is exquisite. And so it's quite seductive, Spanish and, and Italian artwork, and still is. And, and they've, they've got, you can recognise their style immediately, just as you can recognise a French artist, because they love backgrounds. And <laughs> I've pushed backgrounds on British artists they're not really comfortable because they've been looking at too many American comics where <laughs> no one gives a shit about backgrounds. Well, 2000 AD has, has one foot at least from French comics and I love backgrounds. And 
well, you, you know, look at, look at like Kevin's, where you look exactly, at... Exactly, Nemesis, mm. Dread, as you say, those cityscapes are such a huge part of... Mm. The, but then, you know, just to go back to, to Joe's work on, on Charlie's War, I think God, uh, yeah. so much of the, the power there is... The, and it's only looking back at it now as an adult you appreciate it, he'd have these sort of blank backgrounds. So, And it's almost like a sort of a Brechtian stage set where you've got this horrific sort of centrepiece of this suffering or this moment of, of pain uh, or anguish by the character with this sort of blank background, which I'm sure was partly a practical thing because his, his actual line work was so detailed, wasn't it? Yeah. That it, it probably wasn't just the fact that you're, you know, you're working to a deadline. You probably don't. But it looks like this incredible sort of stark contrast between what's happening and what's behind. It gives you, it a, really breath- it gives you a breathing space. Because that yeah, as well, if, every, yeah. if every scene is detailed, it's yeah. a little overwhelming. Yeah. And, and you... You Particularly do, those sort of scenes as well. Just, yeah, and, and, and it can you see it elsewhere, it can look overworked. The page looks overworked. You don't quite... Joe knew intuitively, obviously because he was so experienced, how to get the balance uh, right. And just as I do even to this day on with French artwork, I, I could look at Charlie's War pages and still do occasionally. I, I could look at them forever and ever. And... and Often I actually wouldn't look at the printed comic because I'd think, my God, if I look at this episode, I'm going to lose a day. Because, you know, I mean, I would be as much of a fan as, as, as anyone listening. You know what I mean? I, I would sort of open the comic and I'd look at that. I think, OK, I'm just going to spend half an hour on it, then I'm going to get to work. Three hours later, I'm still <laughs> looking. I'm lost in, in the images. And, yeah. and that's the great thing about comics, that a movie... Or an animation, you can't. I don't think you can really look at a still on, on, a, on an, anima- an it's animation. It's different purposes, isn't it? It's That's a different reason. Yeah, comics have to be so much richer mm. because you're not getting 24 of them a second. You yeah, have, you have to nail so much in that one image or that one series. Of and images. that's such a and such a great talent of which you know Kevin and uh, and Joe are uh, uh, you know supreme exponents. Yeah, going back to 2008, the development of Time twisters and future shocks was was a huge part in terms of yep. you know, bringing in new, new talent. Uh, you know, famously the likes of uh, Alan Moore and, and Neil Gaiman and whatnot. Who, and, who... and and earlier actually, uh, the very first future shock I think was by Kevin, which was a wonderful attack on superheroes. Which I, <laughs> with perhaps a little, or I'm not sure he needed any encouragement, but I <laughs> absolutely adored his. I think the superhero fan comes and visits Tharg's, you know, mobile command centre or whatever it was. And uh, that, that was wonderful. And then following on from that, we had Steve Moore, who, who is very marinated in those kind of weird and eerie stories and, and w- was far more qualified for what you might call science fiction uh, than, than certainly I was. And so he would bring in those kind of classic future shocks. And, and that kind of raised the bar as well. And then another thing that I did before I left, which sadly wasn't sustained, was you only had to look at Brian Bolland's stuff to think, my God, this guy's a superstar. So what I remember saying to him was, do a whole load of covers, you know, whatever you want to do. It's, let's see him as pencil first, just, just to make sure, you know. <laughs> uh, there's nothing about bishops or anything. <laughs> and... Uh, and we will write a little story around it. In other words, <laughs> arguably, uh, the story was not really what it was about. It was about luring you into the comic. And if you look at that phase of 2018, they are wonderful. And so you had these wonderful covers by uh, Brian. And I always remember there was only one we had to say, look, regretfully, we can't use this one. I, 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 doubt, I doubt very much he still got it. But it was, um, it was a very innocent child walking along the street. And, and in the gutter, there's a drain and there's a monster looking up through yeah. the drain at the child. And oh, I, I, w- I wish I'd had the balls to say yes, but I think it would have, I, I, you know, the, the, the subtext of it was yeah. pretty, pretty strong. But it's, I mean, you could, you, you, can, you can imagine the, uh, the axes after uh, action again, wouldn't they? That would be the... They would look, and, and of course, yeah. we, were going, we were suffering because yeah. of action. But my original idea for, for 2080 covers, I always gutted that I couldn't do it. And I, and I still think, you know, if I'd, if I'd got this bloody book, that it would have created an, a, a, an archetype. 2080 covers 
have not had a, a, an iconic look in a way that, say, Private Eye, you instantly recognise a Private Eye cover. And that was my intention. And what happened was, I kept looking at these Lichtenstein things where he's taking the piss out of comics, oh, Brad, and all that. And I thought, yes, yes, that's very funny, and you're making a lot of money out of it. <laughs> OK, why don't we do the same thing to you? And so... I said to the art editor, I said, look, why don't we do Lichtenstein covers with those big dots, right, and, and a big dramatic balloon, you know, the equivalent of, you know, the aliens are coming or whatever, whatever it is, some shock balloon, but with that very Lichtenstein look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'd never heard of Lichtenstein. He said, who the fuck's Lichtenstein? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I'll get you the book. I said, because I've looked at it. It's in my um, local, arts, uh, local art college library in Colchester. And he said, OK. And um, it was a beautiful coffee table book about that, you know, huge. And, and it had all the, the whole collection of these things. This is pre-internet. Of course, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I go along to the library. The book's been nicked, hasn't it? Bloody art students <laughs> nicked it. So, and, and the, the whole book, history of Two Bands Lady is changing up. Uh, yeah, yeah, really. I, uh, I, I really think so. And I'm still pissed off with an art student <laughs> and nicking that book. So I go back and say to a, a real traditional kind of guy who has no background in these things. Uh, so I'm trying to describe Lichtenstein to him. You can't describe it. I, I did my best. So if you look at those early 2008 covers, you can see they're a rather not entirely successful attempt at doing a kind of <laughs> Lichtenstein without Lichtenstein. Because, you know, I mean, I wasn't being paid enough money. And I wouldn't even, you know, I mean, the book would have been, what, probably about 100 quid. And they were coming down on me a bit on expenses because I'd say, look, I need this science fiction book. And they grudgingly... And sometimes I just buy things out of my own pocket because I couldn't be bothered to go through the whole procedure. And I suppose I probably thought, well, I could go down to foils. I can pay 100 quid out of my own money <laughs> to get to buy a Lichtenstein book, which is, you know... You can't take £100 out of petty cash for one book. Not really, no. And, and there are limits to, to what you can do. But I really wanted that almost kind of... Um, I suppose what I was looking for was an amazing... Another one I should have gone for was Amazing Stories. I, what I should, and of course, today it'd be easy. There's plenty of amazing stories, covers on the internet. But you look at the, 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 the way they're designed is really good. The thing that's missing, and it's not acknowledged enough, I think, in comics, certainly not British comics, the intervention of an art editor. Artists are great, but some of them need an art editor. And the art editor is an almost an invisible person. But you can always tell when there's an art editor because it's just got it's just that little bit more rounded. Um, Whereas if, a, if an editor's making a choice and he hasn't got a, an art editorship background, he won't necessarily know why. What I would do if I was ever, God help me, in that situation again, uh, it'd be quite simple. I'd just take all these amazing stories out, take out all the covers I like and say, right, I want something like that. Yeah, yeah. And it's got to have you that impact. So if it's that good, yeah, it, it, you've, you know. So I think that's why we've never had that um, iconic, you know, the logos are iconic. But Private Eye, by comparison, has always had that very iconic covers, and they've, they've never changed, no, really. No. And, and why should they change it? Yeah. It works? It works. Yeah, printing's evolved, but they've not done anything to sort of change yeah. it in terms of... Um, so sometimes you get a great cover, and, and often it would... So it was, you know, sometimes it would depend on the editor. The editor might be quite funny. So you have, I think you have a period, probably in Alan McKenzie's era, where he actually would come up with some very funny catch lines. But I think the, that's a regret of mine. It's something I, sh I, I, sh I, re I should have spent that hundred quid at foils. <laughs> <laughs> um, with the success of 2018 yeah. and an array of incredible creators that are, are lined up, it gets to a point where America comes calling. Yeah. And a lot of these creators are invited over to work on, you know, huge mainstream uh, sure. properties. Uh, Kevin goes over and works on Green Lantern for a little while, has some run-ins with the Comics Code Authority, <laughs> which are uh, hilarious to relate. There's all that one particular instance where they reject a page of his and he thinks it's because he's used some uh, religious iconography and they're like, no, it's your entire style that we reject. Yeah, that's right. You have done some work with uh, Marvel and DC, but uh, arguably... Your... Not with the same intensity or, <laughs> or, or enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> but arguably, uh, your best known work in the States would be Martial Law with sure. Kevin. Yeah. Um, 
which, as a piece, seems motivated by... I've asked Kevin if it was that particular moment that helped him to sort of drive on to do this comic uh, uh, that is essentially about the destruction of superheroes rather than creating superheroes or working <laughs> on superheroes. It's about tearing them down and, and destroying them, literally. Yeah. You yourself are not a fan of superheroes no. as, as a concept. Never read them or enjoyed them. No, not, not uh, what I would call not mainstream superheroes. There, there are notable exceptions, you know. Uh, but yeah, for, for the most part, uh, I mean, I like Dark Knight. Why wouldn't I like Dark Knight? It's brilliantly done. Uh, but again, it's subversive, isn't it? It's taking yeah, ideas yeah. and turning them rather than presenting. And I even like Dark Knight too, simply, which is perhaps... I a, like Dark Knight Well, too. I like Dark Knight too because of the final line where he says something like, fuck off out of my cave. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't say fuck off, but uh, he said get out of my cave or something. And I thought, wow, I don't care if it's not as good as uh, Dark Knight 1. Anyone who says get out of my cave, Superman, or something, I think that's a wonderful line. And and we need more of that kind of stuff, you know. Um, It's all, obviously that time has long gone, that that period of reverence where they're almost like saints. I mean, yeah, you know, that's that's not good. Um, so, yeah, what happened, we went through all these different variations on... Uh, it was a character in search of a story. And then I looked at the character, and I thought, wow, well, actually, you know... I mean, I had this story in mind anyway. And I think we, I think we got the story past uh, Archie. And it was a straightforward crime story, really. It didn't involve superheroes at all. That was it, yeah. We, we, and it was a story that ended up as the, as the first story, but... There, were, there was no superhero factor. And I just kept looking at it and thinking, the guy looks like a superhero, but not, not, not a normal superhero, <laughs> obviously. And I thought, yeah, but I, I, I can't write superheroes. I don't like superheroes. I thought, yeah, and also I, you've got to write what you know and what you care about. And I thought, well, uh, I said this before, obviously, um, I, I'm not really qualified to write a, a superhero story per se, but I am supremely qualified to write uh, a superhero hunter story. So I, I rang Kevin up and I said, well, what about him being... Um... <laughs> Kevin needs very little encouragement in these matters. <laughs> and I, I said, what about him being a superhero hunter? In other words, it, and I think I cited a few examples of the kind of thing I had in mind. And of course, Kevin is an incredibly creative guy. So he comes up, <laughs> suddenly this is spiralling. <laughs> and this wasn't actually what Marvel Epic had in mind at all. And I... I, I, I I think they were very good-natured about it because it was um, it it wasn't actually what we'd signed a contract on. I don't think, <laughs> and uh, no, they were they were great about it, and they were they were really fabulous to work for. Well, Epic was was an imprint of Marvel that yes. was designed to to give creators more space, wasn't it? That was that was very much part of their remit, I think. But they needed quite a lot of space <laughs> for martial law, and I mean, there was no stopping Kevin. I mean, this was as uninhibited as anything that he'd ever. Well, far more, it was it was wilder than anything he'd done on Nemesis, and that was, you know, the red light district, for example. And this was all uh, quite quite shocking, and uh, and it was all very much from the heart, both in in story and art terms. I mean, I, I was really writing from the heart on this, and, and 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 so was you know Kevin painting and drawing from the heart, and uh, yeah, it was it was wonderful. Yeah, at the same time or around the same time, in the UK, you get Crisis uh, emerging as a, as a, 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 yeah. a comic, which really felt like it was, it, you know, takes a lot of the, the same, I don't want to say crusading, that sounds a bit sick, but the same sort of energy as battle and action and 2008 sort of go, here's gonna, an anthology that's going to celebrate what's happening in comics now and happening in the world now, and not be what you've seen before, but moving on and showing how things have, have come on. Yeah, and, and, and that was a tricky one. I think that I always think the biggest problem with, with Crisis was the paper. Because you've got the paper stock. I mean, I'm just looking at these comics here on your, on your racks, and they've all got, uh, yeah, they've all got thicker stock on the cover. Right. And Crisis, I think, is the, probably the only comic I'm aware of where it's the same quality stock, on the cover. Interior. So it's like one of those free things that you get shoved through your door to, <laughs> to go to your local curry house. So it's already at a, at a disadvantage. And then you've got the other thing that, okay, on the one hand, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's taking a, a look at superheroes in the tradition of Watchmen with New Statesmen. 
But the audience that likes that is not the same audience who likes political comics. And, of course, today it would be um, a much harder sell. But if you think back to the late 80s, there was... (laughs) There was there was a demand for that kind of thing. People were saying to me, I, in rough terms, I, I, okay, there weren't that many of them, but enough for me to pay attention to. They say, why do you keep pissing about with science fiction? Why don't you actually tell a story about what's actually going on in the world today? And I go, well, yeah, because no one's asked me to, and, <laughs> and I don't think I'd get away with it. And they go, well, you should be doing that. You know, there was a real feeling of, what are you p- doing pissing about on fantasy? Because, you know... The world's going hell in a handcart kind of thing. And, and you know, all you, all you guys in comics are just, you know, away with the fairies. And then they said to me, well, do you want to do a political story? And I thought, well, OK, that's good. And number two, it's also good because it's not my responsibility, whether it sinks or swims. But there was that real sense of unease when you think, OK, you can't... The, the thing that... Nobody, I think, the lesson that has never really been learned from 2000 AD and, and action and battle is a really simple lesson, but everyone struggles against it. If you see an anthology comic tomorrow, you can be absolutely certain it will be a bit of everything. And that is so wrong. You probably know this as a, as a retailer yourself. People don't want a variety. They want a lot of what they like. And they come to gosh for specific things which are probably a little bit different to other stores. And they don't want you to be everything to everybody. And it's the same with an anthology comic. So 2000 AD is all science fantasy. Arguably, Slain is the exception that proves that, but it's still, it's still within the overarching well, you've got the fantasy genre. fantasy thing that yeah. gives the impression of looking like it. I mean, there's a case, for example, that 2000 AD has never really catered that much for horror, but arguably... It would sit within that thing. But if you if you were to do, a, say, a straight crime story, and I know there has been one, and Button Man, but generally it would be a risky thing to do, uh, to have a straight crime story. People don't want that much variety. They say they do, they don't. They, you know, so if you look at the very early 2000s, when the sales were very much at their peak, it's almost relentlessly monotonous because... That's what the readers wanted. It's like, you've got to stay in that corset. You know, you've got to stay in those tram lines. Look at, look at Strontium Dog, Rogue Trooper, Judge Dredd. They're all very much distant cousins of each other. They're, it's hard-edged sci-fi. They're hard, they're hard edge. None of them smile. <laughs> <laughs> they're always glaring. And, and so much so that when, when we kicked off Slane and uh, my ex-wife Angela uh, did the... She had Slane smiling. She, she just decided to do it herself. I said, oh, I don't know if you can do that. She said, why not? I said, well, yeah, but heroes don't smile in, in 2018. She said, well, I think they should. You know, or something like that. And I thought, okay, why not? Why not? And, and the story actually very much evolved from what you might call some female energy coming into the story. If, if you look at subsequent uh, slains, uh, for the most part, he, he you know doesn't smile as much. But that was that was, that was was really... Down to her. But anyway, coming back to crises, yeah, I mean, it's rather like action. I think, God, I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't a failure. No, neither of them were. But in both cases, the ball got fumbled. And that unfortunately happened. And 2000 AD was the only case, really, where we didn't fumble the ball. It's so easy to fumble the ball, to get it wrong. And so, yeah, having, having a, trying to appeal to a, a Watchman-style audience... And the writer isn't Alan Moore. It's a good writer, but it's a different type of thing. And, and it's a great responsibility to put on the writer. It's, it, in other words, the, the comic's selling on two, two authors and two artists. That's a lot of responsibility. And they're juxtaposed to one another. That, that's yeah. a mistake. But hey, you know, if I can, if, if I can write about third world issues <laughs> and uh, they're going to pay me <laughs> and I can get my subversive message out there... I don't care. And, and I was delighted to do it. And um, uh, I'm pretty certain that it, it, we're still at a sensitive stage, but I think it could be reprinted soon. And uh, I, I mean, actually, it's probably more relevant now. Absolutely. It's not like the situation's... Uh, <laughs> the massively... situation's got somewhat worse. Yeah. I think, I think, and I think in some... No, actually, I think it's probably... Yeah, it's probably more relevant today 
than back then, I think. Because, uh, you know, the situation is that much... Um, and, and there is more recognition about uh, of multinationals of, of how sinister they are. I think back then that was quite a shocking thing to say, <laughs> well, these multinationals are actually pretty bad organisations. I think now there's almost a feeling of, yeah, you're right, so what? Yeah, we know that, you know, we've got the Occupy movement and, and all the other things. So if it does happen, and I think there's a good chance it will, it'd be interesting to see how, where, yeah, how, what, how, it, uh, how the audience responds to it. I uh, plagiarised a strip from Third World War for uh, my English homework. And, uh, <laughs> You're not the first. My teacher spotted it because he was reading Crisis. Oh, no, really? Yeah. It's like, you know, if he'd like to tell me about this uh, story, and I was like, eh, I'm really pleased with how it came out. <laughs> <laughs> Which wasn't the answer he was looking for. So, some, uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 uh, friends of mine, there was somebody telling me, I think he, he, used, he used to use the chronologies from, uh, I don't know, some, he was doing some... I don't know, it wasn't a PhD, it was something much further, uh, much much more primitive. But anyway, he said the, the, the chronologies were really useful. It saved him a hell of a lot of time. <laughs> you know, all that stuff that I'd, you know, relentlessly pieced together in pre-internet yeah. days. Thanks for that. Yeah, well, I, 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 don't know, I don't know how I managed to do it, because, I mean, it's so labour-intensive. And as you say, without the resource of having, you know... Yeah, but you see, what you must remember at the same time, though, was because it was the late 80s... There were publishers then who were coming out with books, and you don't see them around today. I'm thinking of Pluto Press, who were, um, um, yeah, they're gone. Right. But, I mean, they were coming out with lots of radical stuff, and it was accessible to a general public. What these, what these authors were able to do, they made, I wouldn't say they made the subject sexy, because that would be to demean what they were saying, but they made it interesting, entertaining, angry... Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of an author called Susan George, who would have such uh, commercial titles as uh, A Fate Worse Than Debt, you know, talking about third world debt. Right, so right. that title is almost a Daily Mirror, or is it probably a Daily, no, a Daily Mail title, they wouldn't approve <laughs> of it. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a tabloid title, so it draws you in. And, um, and yeah, we're I, back I, to intriguing rather than presenting. Yeah, yeah. And, and otherwise the thing, the thing is punchy and you, and, and you get into it and you think, Wow, this this is, and after all, I mean, food is something you know it's fundamental to us all. So there's all these terrible scams going on about food, and um, no, I I really enjoyed uh, doing it, and and I used a technique that I, I think I think maybe it will perhaps be looked at with more curiosity now than than back then. But I, I used a technique that, as far as I'm aware, no one else has used, and. I think it worked for the most part. Um, I decided rather than I was going to create the characters in a way that um, who's that guy who did Abigail's party? Uh, Mike Lee. Yeah. Well, he would have the, the characters, but he would give the, the actors rough directions, I right. believe. So they're following in. I decided not to do that. I would have the events remain the same, but they're. The, the people's reactions would be based on people I knew. So I had this whole circle of people. And so what I would do is I would go... So everybody in Third World War is actually based on a real person. Right. And I would say, OK, here are these dead bodies. Now, if I was going to write it, I'd probably say, oh, my God, that, that's so tragic. You know, that would be a very typical middle-class kind of reaction. And one guy who was, who was the role model for Finn, for example, said, no, actually, I think that'd be quite interesting... And, and otherwise, so the words they were using were not typical. My, they weren't certainly weren't my words, yeah, and they were coming yeah. out with really disturbing stuff. Uh, and Finn wasn't the only one; some of the others were as well. So much so, for example, that the the main the heroine, uh, I, I said to the role model for 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 the heroine, I said, uh, "Okay, you get you're conscripted. You're in this kind of um, sort of army organization." What would you do? And uh, I, I think her reaction was something like, uh, I'd have a party, take a load of drugs and kill myself or something. <laughs> now, OK, she was probably being flippant, but right, right. it was very different to what I would have said. Yeah. Because, you know, after all, this was, a, say, an 18-year-old girl. And so I used that quite successfully. So a lot of the reactions of people in Third World War were very original and often quite disturbing. So much so that, for instance, the original artist on Third World War, Ian Gibson, 
said he wasn't comfortable, and I can, I can respect this, he wasn't comfortable with a, a heroine um, proclaiming suicide right. as, a, as a solution, which yeah. is totally understandable. Yeah. And he said, no, I, I can't draw this because she, she tried to top herself or something. So Car Carlos was actually a, a default artist on this. And right. In many ways, it turned out well because it was set in South America and the Spanish thing he did so well. You can see their thinking, you know, they're thinking what obviously Watchmen did very well. Halo Jones did very well. So they're thinking Ian Gibson, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a little bit overly calculated. I think sometimes you've just got to let things, you know, the ball go where it will. You know, you... it's interesting as well to sort of feel uncomfortable about something that was said by an actual person. It's not yeah. a case of you as a man putting those words into the 18-year-old the, the girl character's mouth. It, it's, it's you saying, well, this is what someone has said to me, you know, as you say, possibly in a flippant manner, but it's an idea that's been put to me by someone. So it's not... Yeah, I, I can see both sides. Yeah, it. I think it's, it's quite it's, interesting. It's, it's, it, and I think this is the thing. that I, I, What I wanted to see was to actually almost go beyond what Mike Lee... Uh, Mike Lee's characters, as far as I'm aware, are still quite controlled. And I... And, and sometimes I would say, would you do this in that situation? They say, no, I wouldn't. I'd run away or I'd, I'd kill the other person or whatever it was. And often their reactions were quite odd. It's almost like a game of chance for you as a writer, isn't it? To sort of yeah. say, what would you... And you, you, suddenly it's something that would never have occurred to you, which is, you know, great. And, and, it, and it worked for the most part. But what, of course, happens, and, and there's nothing wrong with this either, is that the most extreme character, surprise, surprise... Right. So, in other words, of all my various uh, contacts, the most eccentric or the most extreme, whatever you would say, the character on whom Finn was... Finn was originally based on two people, and one was a bit more right on, and the other was somewhat less politically correct, shall we say. And the less politically correct one was starting to really win out, and also cause some controversy amongst the readers, because he was talking quite openly about animal sacrifice and obviously there were readers who were going no 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 <laughs> and you, you, you almost got to remind them well remember the Archie Goodwin rule it's only a story we're not <laughs> we're not suggesting uh, but and why should characters in a story or in real life why should they always be right on in other words you know people people are people and uh, I mean yeah, your Judge Dredd isn't a very nice no, yeah, person. Exactly, yeah. you know. if, if your story's going to be populated by people all thinking the same way about the same things and doing the same... Which often are in comics, yeah, and that, yeah. or, or used to be, and, and, that's, and that's their weakness. That, yeah. I mean, we all like flawed individuals. So, so what, would, uh, what happened there was Finn uh, became so, if you like, successful that even after Crises had died, we were able to revive him in 2000 AD. So as I say, post-2000 AD, a lot of creators mm. find work yeah. in the States. You've deliberately looked for work and, and created work for yourself in France. Yeah. Was that a, a, a cultural thing, a creative thing, or a, a, a mixture of both? Was it, was it something in terms of French comics as, as a culture that intrigued you? Yeah. Or, yeah. It's because it, it sort of got lost in the ether a bit, but 2000 AD was based primarily on, on French comics, and even where it was based on... American comics like, say, Mike Kaluta's work or Bernie Wrightson, there's a very strong French orientation to them. So, I mean, pre the whole superhero thing, all those guys who are part of the studio, they, there's a very strong European influence there. So for me, uh, Nemesis was a very, too, uh, a very um, French uh, story, and, uh, and there were others as well. Um, yeah, Slane uh, was... The art style, which is something I think even today the readers aren't particularly comfortable with, but it, uh, I use Conquering Armies as my, um, and, and you know that is not a style that is particularly attractive to to fans, but worked with the audience at that time. In other words, it lacks the looseness of, of say McMahon's Sky Chariots, but it has a that. That style in Conquering Armies has the clarity and the detail that I, and also the glory. I tell you what it was. Conquering Armies. Um, it's been reissued by Humanoid. Um, it makes black and white like a colour, in a way that um, that Brian Bolland's work sometimes it's almost black. Black and white is almost a colour, and um, so so yeah. So France was always an, an attraction for me, and the Horn God led the way because the Horn God is probably one of the 
very few uh, 2000 AD stories that's really uh, made an impact in Europe. I mean, it's sold all over Europe. And other 2000 AD stories, mainly more slain and more ABC warriors and a few Judge Dreads. Some Judge Dreads, because, partly because of, of Bolland's work. But also you have to bear in mind the French aren't entirely comfortable with, you know, futuristic cops in, yeah, <laughs> looking yeah. a bit neo-fascist, you know. <clears throat> so they have a different perspective. So, yeah, I, that's really where I wanted to go. And I, I think the French artists recognise that. So I started to get work with French artists. And <clears throat> I just love Bon Dessinée. And, and I have, um, right, from the, right from the beginning with uh, Blueberry, McCoy, all those kind of books, I think, God, this is beautiful. I think, why aren't we doing more like this? And uh, one of the original plans was to, for a, there to be a spin-off from 2000 AD, which Kevin remembers more about than me, uh, but I remember it was muted, perhaps doing a historical comic. It wouldn't be an easy one to do, but it would have been possible at the time. If you think of uh, Sharp of the Rifles, you know, that kind of Absolutely, stuff. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And you've got to pick the right historical eras. and Not everyone would be... You know, you can't just do, say, let's have three musketeers. Yeah. It would just bomb. But there are certain historical eras that would work. Probably Confederate Army, maybe. Uh, that would be another one that would probably work. Probably something like Slain, maybe a Roman perspective or something. In other words, you cherry-pick the historical eras that people like, as opposed to think, this is educational, right. I'm out yeah, of here. Yeah. You know? yeah. and, and Requiem, well, I did... Did loads of things. I did Shadow Slayer. Some that actually haven't found their way over here yet for for whatever reason. Um, Shadow Slayer, Shah. Uh, there's a couple of others. There's Bros um, and uh, uh, yeah, and, and Requiem and, and a spin-off from Requiem Claudia. So um, yeah, that that seems to work. Um, and what's surprising now is Charlie's War is now sold in France and is probably more. Probably outselling, I'd say, the British edition, judging by the number of copies I sign in France. It, it, there's just such a huge appetite in France, isn't there? It's culturally mm. in a very different space, I think, in terms of who reads it and how it's read. And, and yeah, well, the, the people who are into Charlie's War, they've got a slightly different agenda, I think, to, to British readers. It seems to attract, um, I mean, there, there is some, a little academic interest in, in Charlie's War in the UK. There's a lot in France. And uh, I guess it's because Tardy has sort of paved the way and there's lots of others coming out for the anniversary yeah it, it's very close to home for them obviously they were their country was invaded and so um and i think they like the um probably that first, first of all they love the detail of, of joe's artwork which is comparable with um some of their own artists you know okay the style the layout may be different but there's a lot of wonderful detail. Yeah, the detail in these is mm. exquisite, isn't it? And I think they like the fact that there's comedy and soap opera and historical authenticity. Now, the historical authenticity, probably, I mean, the French, that, that's not a problem. All French artists will get that. But I think that kind of comedy, that kind of soap opera, that's probably a... That's, it's a very British thing. I'm not sure... Yeah, it's a remarkable cast of characters. Which yeah. Which you wouldn't necessarily get... In, you wouldn't uh, get it in France no, in the same way. No. I mean, I, offhand, I, I, I can't think of any French no. series where they, they work in quite that way. So I think the French are quite quite fascinated by that. I get a lot of questions asked about uh, all these characters, uh, including my particular favourite, Smith 70, the machine gunner, who, of course, is based on Doug Church, the 2080 art editor. Really? Yeah, so such an eccentric. <laughs> I have to reread it with that in mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was, he was such a wonderful character, such a great character. And uh, so I, I, you know, everyone recognised him who was reading Charlie's Well, Oh, my God, you've got Doug Church in it there, you know. <laughs> um, and what's uh, the future got in store for you? What's, what's up next? More 2080 stuff. There's... There's the usual, I seem to spend so much of my life discussing movie options with people that never happen, you know, and that's no different today, you know, I think, I think uh, yeah, currently there's like, yeah, yeah I think, is that ever going to happen? Who knows? And, you know, you just, you just become more and more cynical, you know, you say, okay, I'll give that a certain amount of time, but I'm not going to, and of course the one thing you never do is you should never, ever, um, write anything on on spec because no. it's not valued yeah you know if they val if they pay you 
then they've made a commitment as well as you. But explaining that to producers, especially American producers, doesn't, doesn't always work. You know, they, they've still got an answer for that, but uh, my, I have to get, run it past my bank manager and he says no. So, uh, so yeah, there's more of that. Um, one of the things really is I, I really want to see uh, girls' comics revive. And I, primarily at this point, it's just, it's just reprint. Right. But if we had a hit, with a with a with a, these reprints, it would open the doors originally for back catalogue. Because bear in mind, there's a girls' comic back catalogue that is at least as big as uh, you know the, the kind of male comic back catalogue, including a lot of good stuff. Not all good, but some of it's pretty cool, and it ultimately could lead to origination because the the nettle no one seems to grasp. I mean, you're particularly aware of it here because I know you have a very strong uh, female uh, you know have a lot of, a lot of women come in to buy buy books which doesn't necessarily apply elsewhere but when we were doing girls comics they were out selling boys comics often by two to one it's incredible and, 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 and it's not like oh well that was then and the demographics changed no what happened was the people who were doing girls comics fumbled the ball and let it go in other words, and the actually girls a female readership were actually more tolerant than male audience, <laughs> so they had to really fumble the ball they <laughs> they really screwed it up, yeah yeah, uh, because girls would let things go in a way that because bear in mind that they weren't so weren't then they probably are now, God help us they weren't that they weren't too fussy about the artists, they wanted good storytelling and they wanted good artists, but there wasn't that sort of same thing like oh it's Brian Bolland this right. week or yeah, yeah. if you don't have Brian Bolland in the comic I'm not buying 2000 AD <laughs> you know or, or that kind of stuff um, they were a bit more easy going on you the, the story probably came a little bit ahead of the art in a way that on 2000 AD it's often been the other way around you know readership will sometimes uh, you know accept uh, a, a fairly average story if it's if it's a cool art, hey, it's busily, it's got to be good, you know. <laughs> okay, script's not very good or whatever, but who cares? You know, it's that kind of thing. That wouldn't really happen on, and didn't happen on girls' comics. Sometimes you'd have a, you think, God, this artwork's great. And then you talk to the editor, who was Jerry Finley Day, and you say, no, nah, the story, they didn't like the story. You say, but the artwork's lovely, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope there's a revival. I'd uh, regularly read, as, as a kid, my own comics and then grab my sister's as well, so... Uh... Yeah, and I, I always used to love reading all these, um, uh, you know, uh, girls' comics as, as a kid myself, and they, they, wherever they were around, and romantic comics. I, yeah, I just used to, used to like all those. I, I, I never. It's probably why I never really uh, got into superhero comics because they weren't around. Actually, what was around? I don't know if this means anything to you. There was an American comic series which uh, I couldn't say I liked because it was so depressing. Um, but I certainly read. It was called Sad Sack. Yes. You heard of that? Yeah, I yeah? Sad Sack. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no one's ever tried making that into a movie. It's probably because <laughs> you want to slit your wrists or something. Yeah. <laughs> it was just about this depressing kind of... It wasn't Sergeant Bilko. It was yeah. like the, the flip side of Sergeant Bilko. It was this guy who just went mooching around looking miserable. And for, I, I guess because it was around, and, and I don't know what it was. It was a, it was a very odd... Um, I can't remember who the... I think it was the Casper the Ghost publisher. Yeah, was it Dell, maybe? Someone like Dell. Yeah, I think it was Actually, Dell. I used to read lots of Dell comics. Right. I, maybe in, in Ipswich, my hometown, maybe Marvel and DC just weren't around. Because I read lots of Dell. Uh, I read Casper the Ghost, all those other Dell uh, comics. And I say, lots of sad sack. Well, it was, uh, until the sort of emergence of the direct market, it was very, it was by chance that you stumbled across any American comics. What, what made it over in the yeah. ships and whatnot. There was no... It wasn't like news agents were taking orders. It was and just... you see, there were, there were a lot of uh, American bases uh, near, near me. Right. And I think, obviously, maybe they hung on to the Captain America comics, because they'd have been reading all those as well, all those US servicemen. But they were, that's probably why there were things like Sad Sack around, and also things like the, the Dell Classics. All my education, yeah, yeah. like so many kids. Hey, <laughs> you know, haven't got to read a classic and just, just read the comic book version on the bus. Uh, I think that's why those Shakespeare comics do so well. You know, <laughs> It's a great shortcut. I think it's... I think it's uh, that's a great resource to have, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, in other words, God, I've got to wade through uh, Romeo and Juliet. And if you can... Yeah, I mean, 
I think the way they've done them as well with manga interpretations mm. and modern, um, it, it's, it's quite clever. That's yeah, really good. Thanks a lot, Pat. Great speaking to you. Really good. Cheers. Cheers. Process is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other podcasts you might enjoy.